You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Victor Huang. The story was recorded in October 2013 at the Rex Theater in Pittsburgh as part of an event for stories by graduate students at Carnegie Mellon University. So when I was 21 years old, I was finishing up my last semester at a small liberal arts college in Boston. And like any college senior, I was pretty excited at the prospect of getting a job and making some money, having real responsibility. But at the same time, I was uh, suffering from a pretty severe bout of senioritis. And in case you're not familiar with senioritis, it's when you take squash, tennis, and yoga classes, and you turn your Thursday 8 p.m. engineering class into a drinking game based on your professor. <laughs> but I got, I got away with it because I had a summer internship at uh, a NASA center the summer before, it was at Jet Propulsion Lab, and they offered me a position that I took, and as soon as I got there, they transferred me onto a project that I knew nothing about. So I had just finished student life a couple months ago uh, of sitting on the couch for five hours a day playing video games in my underwear, and I suddenly found myself responsible for a $330 million spacecraft that was 20 million miles away from Earth for my first job, at 22 years old. But it was really cool when I started. It was like walking into the world's nerdiest playground. You know, I got to play with telescopes and mirrors and cool computers. I got to hang out with these, you know, old school engineers who built spacecrafts with slide rules. And uh, this was really entertaining to me because I, growing up, I wasn't like a huge space nerd. I was more of a computer nerd. So I kind of got to explore this spectrum of nerd. And there was this one guy that I worked with who he was a little bit older, maybe like 50 or 60. And on his cubicle wall, he had a picture of his wife and his kids and his grandkids just in this tiny little patch. And completely surrounding that patch was just pictures of antennas, like radio antennas, deep space network antennas, this 40-meter reflecting antenna that he put on his roof over his Christmas vacation. Like, these guys were really passionate about what they did. And what they didn't tell me about the project was it was just four or five of these guys who were, you know, kick-ass engineers, and they had taken over a spacecraft that initially took 30, maybe 40 people to fly. So I definitely got my wish of having some responsibility because I literally made up, like, 20% of the team. But... It was a good time. Like, when I first started my 
first major task was to take a picture of some galaxies. I uh, got to learn how the spacecraft worked. I got to program a sequence, and a sequence is just kind of a series of instructions that the spacecraft has to follow in order to successfully take a picture of something. So this is really cool. I got to test stuff and got to use the universe simulator, which was like this shitty old box that like barely worked, and it would you know, simulate things moving around in the universe, but it never really worked. <laughs> and when it came time to beam it up to the spacecraft, you know, I got to go to the control room and uh, sit in the driver's seat, order people around, and alpha this, bravo that, with the headset on. <laughs> so I felt pretty awesome. I felt like I was in Apollo 13. Um, but it didn't really take that long for me to get really used to that. It's kind of a weird environment to be in. So when my friends would call me and be like, oh, how's work going? I'd be like, ugh, you know, the sun. The sun is busting my balls right now. <laughs> like, I'm trying to take a picture of this comet, and the sun is just in the way, blinding my camera. Or <laughs> Jupiter. I had to miss my ultimate Frisbee tournament because of Jupiter. It was like... <laughs> You know, we had this tiny little window that we could take pictures of Jupiter, and it was, like, moving really fast. So I had to skip my tournament to, uh, to hit the deadline. And the thing about these deadlines is you can't negotiate with Newton's laws of physics. So I, <laughs> like, I can't do anything about it. But at the same time, I was kind of learning that responsibility wasn't nearly as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Because, like, writing these sequences is really high pressure. Like, if you even flip two commands, instead of turning the spacecraft and taking a picture of something, you might open the camera right into the sun and fry some sensors. So I would definitely have these really unpleasant moments when I'm, like, having dinner with a friend and all of a sudden be like, oh, shit, there's a bug on the spacecraft code that is running right now. And it's, like, 20 million miles away. I can't fix anything. But for the most part... It was never a really big deal, but you know, really drove this deep sense of paranoia into me. And even now, I still have those nightmares where I wake up and I'm like, "Oh my God, I put this like a self-destruct code into my sequence," <laughs> and I wake up thinking I blew up the spacecraft. <laughs> so one month, I had to work on a particularly tricky sequence that involves some um, acrobatic maneuvers with the spacecraft. And I say acrobatic because we had to turn the spacecraft very carefully without aiming kind of its guts into the sun. Otherwise, they would just melt. So I was really nervous about this. You know, I spent weeks just going over every command in my head, in my sleep, and while I was eating, while I was showering. And before you send anything to the spacecraft, you have to sign this document that says, I'm confident in what I did. I tested and reviewed it, and I'm 99.999% sure that it's not going to break anything. Well, I was not that confident. But I had shown my team, and they looked at it, and they were like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, just, just beam it up. So I beam it up. And on the day the spacecraft is phoning home, I get up to the control center about half an hour early, and the operator there, you know, I chit-chat with him. He's an older guy who loves starting flame wars on Google Groups or something. So he was telling me his latest flame war. <laughs> I wasn't really listening because... You know, this is the first time I'm going to talk to the spacecraft in a few weeks, and this is when I'm going to find out if my crazy concoction is actually going to work. So I set up my computer, and I'm watching the countdown timer that uh, tells us exactly when the spacecraft is going to communicate with us. And I'm watching it count down and down and down, 
and it hits zero and starts going back up. And I look at my screen, and I don't see anything. And spacecrafts are never late. But I don't quite start panicking yet, because there are a lot of things that can happen that'll cause the spacecraft to do funny things. Uh, well, specifically on the ground. If it's windy in the desert and the antennas are kind of flopping around, you're not going to get a good signal. So I kind of left it to the operator to figure out uh, if there are any problems on Earth. And meanwhile, I'm looking at my crazy code for the thousandth time, except this time, maybe just because I've kind of got, there, like, there's a problem. I'm looking at this, and it just looks like a mess. And I look at it, and it's just like there's... I think there's a bug. But I don't really tell my operator because every minute that goes by, he's telling me, like, oh, it's not the antenna, it's not this, it's not that. And with every, everything he tells me, my hypotheses just get worse and worse and worse. And I'm beginning to think, like, oh, my God, did I turn the spacecraft and just melt everything? Did, was the turn too aggressive and it's just, like, tumbling around in space? Or did it blow up? Like, did I blow up the spacecraft? <laughs> And obviously, I could call my boss at this point and ask for help, but, you know, what would that be like? Hey, Steve, um, I can't find the spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that. Part of being good at this job is being able to put out fires, and this is my first major fire. kind of want to handle it on my own. But after half an hour, the operator is like, there's nothing I can check are you sure your sequence works? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm looking at my code again, and I, this time, I don't know how, but I see something a little suspicious. And we had had a schedule change um, that the antennas are always tracked, and projects get a certain amount of time, and sometimes the schedules change. And I couldn't tell if I had made the spacecraft turn back according to the new schedule, because I was so panicked that I couldn't do the simple arithmetic and bookkeeping to figure out exactly what time I was going to turn back. Instead, I'm sitting there worrying about tomorrow's headline of, like, 22-year-old blows up spacecraft, publicly shamed by Jean-Luc Picard or something. <laughs> so I tell myself, all right, in 10 minutes, if I don't hear anything... I'm just going to call my boss. I'm going to declare a spacecraft emergency. I don't actually know what that means. I just heard the term before, and I felt like it was pretty appropriate for the situation. And I just kind of bury my head in my hands, and I hope I'm going to have a job in 10 minutes. And a very distant voice in my headset kind of brings me out of it, and I hear, we have a lock. Okay. My operator tells me, I'm going out for a smoke break. I'm like... Okay, and I look at my screen and I see some data flowing in. But it still takes me like 15 minutes of just continuous sweating before I've like successfully recovered from this, from what I think is a nerd's greatest fantasy gone bad. And I leave the control room and I run into one of my coworkers and he sees me, he's like, what happened to you? Because I'm like disheveled, I'm sweaty, my hair's all messed up because I pull my hair when I'm really stressed out. And I tell him what happened. And while I'm telling him what happened, I kind of realize nothing actually happened. <laughs> like, there, nothing broke. We didn't miss any data. It was just a scheduling issue. I just 
kind of made the spacecraft late. And he's just kind of laughing at me because he's got you know, 20 years of experience doing this. He's, he's seen this before. And he just tells me, you know, Vic, if your job makes you shit your pants sometimes, then you know you're learning something good. <laughs> and it's been about a year since I left that project. And in that time, I've driven a robot into a wall. I've nearly karate chopped my office mate with a robotic arm. And I had a quadcopter fall out of the sky like a brick. And while none of those really compete with losing a NASA spacecraft, which I'm perfectly fine with, um, the fact that it gets my blood pumping tells me I'm doing, working on the right things. That was Victor Huang. Victor is a New England-born nerd. After graduating from Tufts, he helped build ground telescopes, fly spacecrafts, and chased a dream to become a circus acrobat. Now he's a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute, trying to make humanoid robots a little bit smarter. The event was part of a collaboration with PCR, Public Communications for Researchers at Carnegie Mellon. Huge thanks to them, the Carnegie Mellon College of Engineering, the Vice Provost for Education, and the Division of Student Affairs for support. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Rex Theater for hosting the show, to Adona Yosef, Jesse Dunyetz, and Arden Shore at PCR for enormous help putting this together, and to the $10 million telescope I didn't actually break that one time. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.